The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The State of the Union is crisis. It's Thursday, February 1st, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. This is not the end. It really isn't. But it's as close as we've ever been. If the hands on the doomsday clock ever get to midnight, then theoretically it's all over. Those hands moved 30 seconds closer to midnight just in the past year, the closest we've ever been. We had already moved 30 seconds closer last year, so now it's a minute closer than it was just two years ago. Some clocks are simply alarm clocks. This clock is simply alarming. The group that adjusts this symbolic clock, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, puts most of the blame on a tough-talking Trump. But it certainly includes Kim Jong-un and the absence of new weapons treaties and the growing tension between the United States and Russia. Quoting one of the scientists, there is little doubt that the risk that nuclear weapons may be used intentionally or because of miscalculation grew last year around the globe. They say the debate over whose button was bigger hasn't helped. This week, a Russian fighter jet came within five feet of a U.S. Navy surveillance plane in international airspace over the Black Sea. Five feet. It was more than a scare. It was a danger. The U.S. aircraft turned away, and the State Department made the usual public complaint. We learned this week that the emergency management worker in Hawaii who fired off an incoming missile warning had not done it by accident. Not knowing that a drill was underway, the employee pushed the button that sent the warning to phones and TVs. He did it because he thought the attack was real. He had made mistakes before, and he's now been fired, and his boss has resigned, but all of this may reflect an air of nervousness. That pre-recorded exercise included the words, This is not a drill. Trump is now looking for a new person to serve as U.S. ambassador to South Korea after his first choice called Trump's policy on North Korea dangerous to the U.S. A test of the U.S. missile defense system yesterday failed. It was the second failure in the last three tests of the system designed to protect our soldiers and allies within medium range of North Korea. The doomsday clock's been running forward and backward since 1947, the last time we were this close to midnight was 1953, when both the U.S. and the Soviets developed hydrogen bombs. At the end of the Cold War in 1991, we were 17 minutes away from doom. Now it's two. James Comey was told he had been fired as FBI director when he saw it on a TV screen during a meet-and-greet with his agents in California. Comey was there for an event that evening to recruit the next generation of FBI agents. Instead, Comey flew home immediately on the government jet that had carried him from his home in Washington, D.C. to that field office on the West Coast. Trump was also watching TV to see the news coverage after firing a man who had made his life more difficult. Things would be different now. Trump later told Russian officials as he gave them and their Russian camera crews access to the Oval Office that the burden had been lifted. But it was on TV that Trump saw Comey's plane take off from California, and it pissed him off. The president called the guy who was filling in as FBI director until he could pick a new one and get him confirmed by the Senate. Trump called suddenly acting director Andrew McCabe, and the president was furious. He demanded to know why Comey, now fired, had been allowed to fly home on the taxpayer's dime. Trump was also armed with the knowledge that McCabe's doctor wife had unsuccessfully run for Congress, partly with money from a friend of a friend of Hillary Clinton's. McCabe answered that he didn't know whose decision it was to fly Comey home on a government plane, but added that if it were up to him, he would have approved it as well. This was not the loyal answer Trump wanted to hear and brought out the bully, telling McCabe to ask his wife how it feels to be a loser. Okay, sir, said McCabe, and then without another word, Trump hung up. At their introductory meeting later, Trump asked McCabe who he'd voted for in the 2016 presidential election. We now know Trump asked Rod Rosenstein back in December if he, Rosenstein, was on Trump's, quote, team. 
Of course, we're all on your team, Mr. President, said Rosenstein awkwardly, according to multiple confirmations. Trump also asked Rosenstein where he thought the Russia investigation was headed. Rosenstein quietly declined to answer. It was reminiscent of Trump asking Comey for a loyalty pledge. In McCabe's case, answering Trump's question about who he voted for, McCabe said he didn't vote, which was a slam at Trump since McCabe had voted in the Republican primary, apparently for a Republican other than Trump. Trump has repeatedly and publicly slammed McCabe, a lifelong civil servant, and now Andrew McCabe is gone. He quit without notice this week ahead of his retirement at age 49 by using his remaining vacation days. The White House says Trump had nothing to do with McCabe's sudden and early departure. FBI Director Christopher Wray reportedly said McCabe had to go since he'd become a target of Republican efforts to undermine the Russia investigation. Specifically, McCabe was a target in a four-page Republican memorandum aimed at discrediting both the FBI and the United States Department of Justice, specifically their investigations into Trump-Russia. Except for Robert Mueller and Rod Rosenstein, Trump has now fired and or maligned and or driven out everyone overseeing the Russia investigation. Conventional wisdom says Rosenstein and Mueller are the next to go, in that order, as Trump and his Republicans continue their attacks on our nation's law enforcement institutions. Trump has fired Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, FBI Director James Comey, scores of federal prosecutors, including the one in New York, who was investigating Trump's businesses, and now driving out Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe. Trump has badmouthed Attorney General Jeff Sessions and has now turned his sights onto Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the only government official still protecting Special Counsel Robert Mueller. And Rosenstein is now the guy with the target on his back. Conveniently, that Republican memo also targets Rosenstein. The memo questions the Deputy Attorney General's decision to continue surveillance of a Trump campaign associate under investigation as a possible Russian agent, Carter Page, a former campaign foreign policy advisor for Trump. Even Trump's Justice Department paints Page as a Russian actor. But Republicans backing Trump say the warrant to track Page was based on the Steele dossier, which they claim is a politically biased document. Christopher Steele, who had gathered data about Trump's business dealings in Russia and more, is neither Democrat nor Republican. He's a former British spy working for a nonpartisan research agency run by investigative journalists. The FBI points out that it cannot get a surveillance warrant without also offering the judges its own investigative evidence in addition to outside evidence such as the Steele dossier. In other words, it wasn't just the Steele dossier behind the FBI probe. So the Republican claim that the Russia investigation was inspired and fueled by a memo they see as politics is a lie. Republicans in their memo claim Rosenstein shouldn't have used this politically motivated document to extend the surveillance of the suspected Russian operative Carter Page. They lay out an argument that Rosenstein used bad judgment. If you're looking for grounds to fire a guy, bad judgment sounds pretty good. And with Rosenstein gone, Trump can replace him with anyone, someone he likes, someone who's loyal, someone who'd be open to firing Mueller. And Republicans have decided to release their memo despite a warning from the Justice Department that such a release would be reckless. The memo contains information that has not been verified by U.S. intelligence as true. Republicans did let FBI Director Christopher Wray take a quick look, and he reportedly found it to have many inaccuracies. And he repeated that it should not be released because it could endanger U.S. intelligence gathering, cripple it in a crucial way, perhaps forever. Ray had warned House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes in person not to release the memo. That did not work. Ray and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein went to House Speaker Paul Ryan asking him to discourage Nunes from releasing the memo. That did not work. Ryan said no. Monday, both Director Ray and Rosenstein went to the White House together to implore Chief of Staff John Kelly not to let Trump release the memo. That does not appear to have worked either. The president has since said he is 100% for releasing the memo, and the White House said it might take a day or two for the national security to look it over before it's released. Still, John Kelly told reporters the memo would be released pretty quick for the whole world to see his words. And then turning up the heat yesterday, the FBI spoke publicly and forcefully about the memo 
about it being both inaccurate and damaging to ongoing investigations. In a statement, the Bureau said it has grave concerns about the material omissions of fact that fundamentally impact the memo's accuracy. The memo includes classified information. The lawmakers were sworn not to reveal, as it could also expose investigative sources and methods that would otherwise be used in future investigations. If the House Intelligence Committee betrays its confidence with the FBI and Justice Department, those agencies will lose all trust in the committee that oversees them, perhaps for decades to come. None of this worked. None of any of this meant anything to Trump or to the Republicans in Congress, all the way from Devin Nunes to Paul Ryan. Reuters now reports the memo will be released today. The Republican House Intelligence Committee, chaired by former Trump transition worker Devin Nunes, had voted to release their partisan memo and to keep secret the counter-memo written by Democrats. Nunes would not say if he got help with the memo from the White House, just as he had gotten help from the White House before in his claim that Trump Tower had been wiretapped by the Obama administration, which is also not true. Republicans are now intentionally releasing classified data after vilifying Hillary Clinton for risking doing it accidentally. The Republican-led Intelligence Committee also voted to launch an investigation of the FBI. They are providing cover for Donald Trump. Lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, are now assisting in Trump's obstruction of justice. Cover for what? The New York Times reports Trump has long been mistrustful of Rod Rosenstein and considered firing him months ago, just before he briefly ordered the firing of Bob Mueller. Trump reportedly once called Rosenstein a threat to his presidency. The Times sources say Trump has once again grown frustrated with Rosenstein, which is why so many believe that Rosenstein is about to be fired, the man protecting Bob Mueller, the only guy still protecting the job of the special prosecutor. One writer called it Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre in slow motion. Like the president who was forced out of office 44 years ago, Trump is collecting scalps at the Justice Department and the investigation that could bring down his presidency. These attacks on American law enforcement are an act of desperation, desperation to survive either as president or as the party that's gotten its way during his reign. But Trump is reportedly upbeat, feeling that things are going his way. McCabe, Paul Manafort's refusal to flip for prosecutors, and a Republican memo that clears the way for him to get rid of Rosenstein and then Mueller. NBC News reports that Trump has even talked with friends about asking Jeff Sessions to prosecute Bob Mueller and all 17 of his investigators. Meanwhile, the wheels appear to be coming off Republican efforts to discredit the Russia probe and Bob Mueller. The FBI agent from the probe who'd tweeted negative comments about Trump and who'd done the same for Clinton, Sanders, and others was biased in his work on the current investigation. That's the claim. Now we know that same agent wrote the draft of the letter that James Comey used to reopen the Clinton email probe just days before the 2016 election. So much for the argument that Agent Peter struck was biased against Trump. Although he was uneasy about Comey releasing the letter that close to the election, it was Strzok who wrote the first draft of the letter that ended Hillary Clinton's presidential hopes. And the leaking of that particular information to CNN would indicate the FBI is fighting back. The premature exit of Andrew McCabe is the result of a full-court press by Trump and his Republicans to prove that America's real enemies are the FBI and the Department of Justice. At least the parts of those agencies Republicans believe are part of a Democratic deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump. As our own Bob Seska has pointed out, the Attorney General and his deputy, the FBI Director and his deputy, the heads of the NSA, CIA, and National Intelligence Agencies, and the chairs of the Congressional Committees investigating Russian interference, are all Republicans, right down to Special Counsel Robert Mueller, another Republican. These are the deep state conspirators who Trump and his Republicans say are the real threat. You'll also hear that on Fox News at least from Trump favorites Sean Hannity, Steve Ducey, Lou Dobbs, and Jeanine Pirro. 
Their theory doesn't fly with Fox's Shepard Smith, who's kept well out of prime time. Smith and other commentators on other networks agree that the Trump-led conspiracy theory is a threat to this country and even to the conservative cause. Fox has become for Trump what the Russian channel RT is for Vladimir Putin. When the New York Times first broke the story that Trump had months ago asked that Robert Mueller be fired, Sean Hannity poo-pooed it, telling his viewers the paper was, quote, trying to distract you. Later, Hannity was forced to quietly admit that even his own Fox News had confirmed the story, but he and the other host continued to dismiss it. And Trump and his Republicans continue their institutional attacks on the FBI and justice. Fox News is right there, egging them on. With more about that Republican memo and how it's likely to backfire, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Once again, another Trump line of attack is spattering back in his face. It's not the first time and certainly won't be the last. Indeed, the Nunes memo is about to explode in Trump's balled-up hands like an M80 with a too-short wick. At least that's what ought to happen. It shouldn't be too terribly difficult to dissect the memo, given that it's reportedly only four pages long. Four pages of gibberish likely written in coordination with Trump is supposed to evidently send shockwaves through the corridors of power at the FBI and Justice Department. Four pages that were hyperbolically described this week by former Trump advisor Sebastian Gorka as being 100 times worse than the reasons for the American Revolution. I'm not making that up. Again, there's a big if here. If the experts debunk it quickly enough, the public will likely go along. If not, there's a very real chance for the memo to be taken at face value. There's also the distinct possibility that the deliberately scrambled, twisted, amateurish content of the memo will confuse people enough to go along with the Trump-Republican narrative. This is what Fox News does all the time, spreading the facts around in a way that forces casual viewers to give up and to go along with the superficial reading of whatever... This confused, thus compliant reaction is more or less what happened nearly five years ago during the summer of Snowden. The reporting about Edward Snowden's stolen cache of top-secret NSA documents was accepted without much critical thinking by Congress or cable news because, yes, laws related to the intelligence community are, surprise, complicated. Nothing Snowden revealed turned out to be against the law and carried out by the NSA with legal warrants from the FISA court, facts that journalists like Glenn Greenwald buried at least 12 paragraphs into various bombshell articles throughout the summer of 2013 and into 2014. Generally speaking, surveillance of American citizens is creepy, no doubt. For example, we were justifiably alarmed during the Bush years when American citizens were surveilled without warrants. But the practice was ended with the expiration of the program and the passage of the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. Additionally, the racist and unconstitutional COINTELPRO operations 50 years ago were also massive violations of civil liberties. However, there are American citizens who, due to a wide array of nefarious activities, become targets of counterintelligence investigations, just as any other criminals being pursued by everyone from local cops right on up to the FBI. Amid the volumes of Snowden documents, as well as contained within the reporting that attempted to interpret the files, we learn that there are layers upon layers of civil liberties oversight in place, be it the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, or PCLOB, the FISA Court, the Inspectors General within each intelligence agency, and so forth. Likewise, the process of acquiring a warrant to conduct surveillance on an American citizen requires impeccable evidentiary documentation and regular renewals of warrants. Miles upon miles of red tape. Contrary to the substance of the law, the Nunes memo will likely tell us that Carter Page was illegally wiretapped by the FBI in an obvious violation of his civil liberties and done so as a part of a subversive plot to undermine the Trump campaign. In order to achieve this conclusion, the surveillance activities cited in the memo will be spun in a way that makes legal collection of signals intelligence, or SIGINT, linked to Page seem scandalously outrageous, but only if we know nothing about the law. And frankly, I'm highly confident that congressional Republicans will flummox the details of the FISA law, which, by the way, they pushed for and recently reauthorized with the signature of President Trump himself. I'm also certain that cable news, minus, of course, Maddow and other normals, will leave nuance off the air as well, given the complexities of the law and the drive-by nature of modern viewers. Meanwhile, you can expect Greenwald contrarian types on the left to pile on with the Republicans and the Trump White House because this is what they do. Ultimately, though, don't be fooled. 
The truth will tell us that Carter Page was operating as an agent of a foreign government, Russia, while acting in cahoots with Russian spies to scramble the election. This will entirely justify the surveillance of Page by the FBI. We'll also learn that Rod Rosenstein's process, along with other investigatory actions by federal officials, fell entirely within the boundaries of the law, no matter what you might think of the law itself, regardless of whether you perceive it to be constitutional. The law is the law. We can't and shouldn't condemn anyone for acting within the law, should we? If we'd prefer to change the law, that's a separate and perfectly valid discussion. But let's never forget who we're talking about here. This is about Donald Trump working in coordination with Russia to steal the election. This is a president who lies almost as often as he breathes. This is a president who will stop at nothing to shield himself from accountability for this and other crimes against the American people. He will do anything, regardless of whether it's legal or constitutional. When the truth about the Nunes memo is revealed, Trump will have inadvertently admitted that one or more of his campaign advisors are agents of a hostile foreign power. And the only way we'll get down to the truth is if we're all prepared to fight for it. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. It was just after the release of my last report that we learned that Trump had once ordered the firing of Robert Mueller. We also learned Trump backed down from that order when White House lawyer Don McGahn said he'd quit if Trump didn't rescind the firing. Even Trump's advisors are concerned about an obstruction of justice case, and rightly so. Most Republicans in Congress don't seem to be. If Donald Trump is proven to have lied to the American people when he called reports of his attempt to fire Mueller fake news, that would be grounds for impeachment and important evidence for the Mueller case. So says the independent prosecutor who nailed Bill Clinton for lying about Monica Lewinsky and labeled that lie grounds for impeachment. Trump has now repeatedly denied that he's considered firing Mueller, despite multiple White House sources who say he did. One even said so publicly back about the time Trump was reportedly mulling firing Mueller. Trump reportedly had three reasons for firing Mueller, including an alleged dispute over Mueller's fees at a Trump golf club. ABC News asked Clinton prosecutor Ken Starr if he thinks Trump is, like Clinton, also risking impeachment grounds. Lying to the American people is a serious issue, warned Starr, adding, I take it very, very seriously, so... Absolutely. That, says Starr, is something Bob Mueller should look at. If Trump did lie about this, it's a lie he has repeated a dozen times. The attempted firing of Mueller would contribute greatly to Mueller's investigation of apparent obstruction of justice by the president. Talk continues of Congress of somehow safeguarding Mueller, at least among a few lawmakers. Trump himself faces questions from Mueller in a couple of weeks. A number of Trump supporters, including the ones on the Fox News channel, are telling Trump to refuse to do the interview. Trump's lawyers are still looking for ways in which he could pull that off. Their latest effort argues that Mueller has not yet met the high threshold they say he needs to meet to interview a sitting president in person. They say their client has cooperated so far, providing documents, for example. This is reportedly not their final answer, just asking for a friend. Whatever their final answer is, if Mueller doesn't like it, he can subpoena the president to answer those questions in front of a grand jury. Mass nationwide protests are still planned, just as they've been since before Christmas, in the event Robert S. Mueller III is fired as special counsel. Thousands of protests are planned for every state in the nation and multiple protests in most of those states. The plan continues to be if Mueller is fired before 2 p.m. your time, the protests begin at 5 p.m. your time. If Mueller's fired after 2, the protests start the following day at noon. Those who enter their zip codes at trumpisnotabovethelaw.org will find the protest sites closest to them. The special counsel's investigation into apparent obstruction of justice has taken a giant leap forward, according to reporting by both Reuters and the New York Times. They report that Mueller is focused keenly on not only that meeting in Trump Tower during the campaign between Russians and key members of the Trump campaign, but also on the explanation of that meeting by the president on behalf of his son. 
Speaking for his son from Air Force One, Trump's story was that the meeting was about Americans adopting Russian children. We now know, of course, thanks to the emails of Donald Trump Jr., that the meeting was really to help get campaign dirt on Clinton from the Russians. Trump, who had told his audiences he'd soon have dirt on Clinton, was in the building during that meeting and on the presidential jet when he needed to explain it. Trump was on the phone with advisor Hope Hicks, who reportedly told Trump that Don Jr.'s emails would never be discovered. It isn't clear whether she meant they'd never be found or if they'd be withheld or destroyed. Since Trump was part of that discussion, a discussion not protected by attorney-client privilege because no attorneys were present, he too is culpable for that statement. A White House lawyer who was aware of the conversation immediately resigned in protest of what he perceived as obstruction of justice. That lawyer has been talking to special counsel Robert Mueller, and now Mueller wants to ask Trump about that conversation. We're going to need more popcorn. There is, by the way, a second dossier. The Guardian reports that last fall, Christopher Steele handed the FBI a dossier assembled by Cody Shearer. Shearer is a former journalist, a controversial political activist who was close to the Bill Clinton White House, so he's more biased than Steele and and the company that hired Steele. Unlike Steele, Shearer has no background in espionage, but funny thing about his dossier, the Shearer dossier. Does it corroborate what Christopher Steele observed and recorded in his more famous and more credible dossier? The FBI is looking into that. Like a decent wristwatch, the FBI takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Among the other big and surprising developments of the past week, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to release transcripts of its interviews with Donald Trump Jr. and others in that Trump Tower meeting with Russians during the campaign. Again, the purpose of the meeting was for the Trump campaign to get dirt on Clinton from the Russians, and the president's son was excited. I love it, he said in an email before the meeting, to which he dragged his brother-in-law, Jared Kushner, and dad's campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Manafort hasn't talked to the committee, and under house arrest, he is now as unavailable as he is uncooperative. The Judiciary Committee hasn't questioned Kushner. But Senate investigators had questions for four of the Russians in the room, who have answered in written form. The committee also had questions for Don Jr. and will now share his answers and the Russians with the public and by default to special counsel Robert Mueller. What Russia is up to now, a complete look at the State of the Union speeches and it's all in the rest after this. If you're ready to go wireless, then get the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Heller stay in your ears with five hours of use and a hundred hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller has a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three, and Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly cannot beat the prices for this level of quality guaranteed. And the shipping's free anywhere on the planet. And because everything sounds better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com, all my other great sponsors, and through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. New numbers from Twitter show that the Russian bots retweeted Trump nearly a half million times in the final two months before the 2016 election. Just under 470,000 retweets for Trump, about one-tenth that number for Clinton. This information was shared with the Senate Judiciary Committee's investigation into Russian interference in our election process, and the committee has now made it public. Twitter, Google, and Facebook were asked to share that kind of information with the committee. Facebook said it found 129 events created by Russian trolls spreading disinformation to influence the election. Those 129 fake events, events that never actually occurred, attracted the attention of nearly 340,000 Americans, 
tens of thousands of whom said they planned to attend. It's not known how often people actually showed up expecting an organized rally only to find none. The data shows how Russians were able to get Americans to at least say they were ready to act. It shows the Russians were successfully able to get U.S. citizens to take up causes they might not have considered before the Russian trolling began. The issues are the ones that best divide and conquer the American people. Gun rights, police violence, the Confederacy, and immigration. All tweets from Russians. Stop the Islamization of Texas, wrote the Russians. Last fall, we learned that 10 million of us saw ads paid for in rubles and that 126 million of us saw their free posts. The Trump administration has decided not to place any new sanctions on Russia for its continued meddling in the American political process. That will be pleasing to Vladimir Putin. Not only that, the Trump administration has decided to not even enforce the sanctions against Russia that were ordered by Congress last year to punish Russia for interfering in the election and to discourage Russia from doing it again in this year's election. The vote for sanctions in the House was 517 to 5. In the Senate, it was 98 to 2. Trump's decided to ignore that. Suddenly, the president is defying Congress. Our system of checks and balances has been bypassed. For many, this alone creates a constitutional crisis. The Trump White House says those new sanctions won't be necessary, that just having those sanctions at the ready is enough to keep Russia from meddling again. That jaw-dropping decision comes even as Trump's own Homeland Security Chief Mike Pompeo tells Congress the Russians are prepared to interfere again in this year's congressional races. As you will soon hear, it makes sense that Pompeo would know that. In the last election, Russian hackers got into or tried to get into voter data in nearly half our states, 21 states to be exact, as, as exact as we can be with the limited knowledge we have. Trump's decision also means that American companies eager to make money from Russian defense and intelligence firms can go right ahead with those deals. Trump's decision angered lawmakers and muted their bipartisan voice on foreign affairs. Even if they couldn't stop it, lawmakers saw this decision coming. Trump's Treasury and State Department still have not met the deadline of last October 1st to issue guidance for enforcing the sanctions. That was your first clue. And when lawmakers began to question why that guidance still hadn't appeared, the Trump administration went dark and said nothing. Monday, we found out why. It was because the Trump administration had decided that Russia has been adequately deterred from any future interference, even though it continues today, today, with Russian bots supporting the release of the Republican so-called memo aimed at discrediting the FBI that's investigating Russian meddling. Last week, Russia's three top spies were in the U.S. meeting with Trump Homeland Security Chief Mike Pompeo and other U.S. intelligence officials. We have been told the meeting was about working together to fight terrorism. But we were not told about the meeting or its purpose by the U.S. government. As with the past meetings and phone calls between Trump and Putin, the White House never reported this meeting either. We learned about it, as usual, from Russia as translated and reported by Reuters, which is how we learned about all the other meetings with Russia. Also, one of the three Russian intelligence chiefs that was here last week is a Russian who is banned from traveling in the U.S. as part of the sanctions against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and its meddling in the election process. In other words, unless that spy chief got a special waiver from the State Department, that Russian spy chief was here illegally, meeting in secret, just outside Washington, D.C. The State Department won't comment, but the Kremlin will. It was the best of Trumps. It was the worst of Trumps. In the tale of two Trumps, there's the day-in, day-out Twitter Trump. On special occasions, there's the teleprompter Trump. They are, of course, the same guy speaking two languages. Tuesday night, the teleprompter Trump delivered his first State of the Union speech in which he ironically called for unity. Nearly 10% fewer people were watching than watched his speech to Congress about a year ago. 
it was very well received by those who watched. 75% really liked it. But that's to be expected, and even that's lower than usual. Those who watched were mostly from Trump's voter base, just as most of Obama's State of the Union audience was from his base and approved at his speech at 83%. Teleprompter Trump is likely to see a bump in the polls, a slight increase from his spot as the most unpopular any president has been in his first year. Trump won praise for the Americans he recognized during the speech and for this time saying we more than I Teleprompter Trump is more popular than Twitter Trump. The Twitter Trump that now follows the speech and the enclosing Russia investigation should quickly bring those numbers back down. Democrats, the ones watching at home and those watching from a seat inside the Capitol Dome, were unmoved in the wake of a year of lies, racism, and division, an apparent and dangerous flirtation with Russia, along with attacks on the free press and the institutions of American law enforcement. Democrats were not moved by Trump's enticement of paid family leave, prison reform, lower prescription prices, and a vague infrastructure program. Democrats groaned when Trump said, Under the current broken system, a single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Which is not true. When Trump said, for decades, open borders have allowed drugs and gangs to pour into our most vulnerable communities. Joe Crowley, the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, shouted, oh, come on. In his four-pillared immigration and security proposal, Trump called for an end to the U.S. visa lottery system, which he claimed, quote, randomly hands out green cards without any regard for skill, merit, or the safety of our people, which is also a lie. That may have been Trump's biggest lie of the night, since the vetting of those visa applications is slow, extensive, and limiting. Democrats were energized by two other glaring moments in the speech. In one, Trump called on Congress to let cabinet secretaries fire civil servants they feel are not acting in the best interests of the American people. Most of us read that as a desire to fire anyone whose politics don't align with those of the Trump administration. It appeared to be an assault on the so-called deep state in government that Trump believes is a source of his Russia troubles. That was as close as Trump came Tuesday night to mentioning the Mueller investigation. In another attention-getting moment, the part of the speech written by extreme right-wing advisor Stephen Miller, Trump was talking about immigrants when he said, Americans are dreamers too. He offered a path to citizenship for nearly two million dreamers, but only if he could have his wall and a cutback on legal immigration. And Trump again pointed to a grieving family after a child was killed by an undocumented immigrant, implying and even saying that U.S. crime and drugs can be traced to unchecked immigration, tying dreamers to street gangs. Former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke loved the speech, tweeting, Thank you, President Trump. That was the Donald Trump-Stephen Miller part of a speech whose theme, on the surface at least, was unity. In short, it was the same guy. Trump promised to keep open the prison at Guantanamo Bay, reversing Obama's decision to close it. That prison, which hasn't added to its population in 10 years, currently houses just 41 suspects, at a cost of $450 million a year. Trump called for more nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal and more money for the military and used a stern adjective for North Korea in what sounded to many like preparation for war. Trump did not, this time, call out Kim Jong-un by name. That's the other Trump. What the two Trumps have in common is the tendency toward inaccuracy, exaggeration, and outright lies. Based on fact-checking from sources including PolitiFact, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, Trump was wrong to say that he and this Congress enacted, quote, the biggest tax cuts and reform in American history. There have been bigger ones many times in our history. Reagan's was the biggest in 81. The post-war tax cut of 1945 was bigger, and so were the cuts in 48, 64, and 1921. Also, the Trump Republican tax plan is now $4 trillion smaller than it was when it was first proposed, now making it the eighth 
biggest tax cut. Not nearly the biggest. It's a tax plan that's unpopular with the American people, largely because 21% of the tax cuts go to the top 1%, while those squarely in the middle get 10%. Trump's family saves $11 million under that plan. Trump spent a lot of time in his speech touting an economy that's been good for Wall Street but hasn't trickled down. He claims to have added 1.8 million jobs since Election Day. But even that was nothing to brag about, being the slowest rate of hiring in the past seven years. Trump took credit for lower unemployment, especially among blacks and Hispanics. Surveys show Americans give that credit to Obama. Trump claimed higher wages. He just didn't mention that the rate of that rise is also slower than it was under Obama. Trump took credit for the stock market, although it's growing on the same upward curve that started early in the Obama years. But here was Trump citing government numbers that during the campaign he had called fake and nonsense. His claims about energy were as misleading as his claims about jobs. We're still importing more oil than we export, and Trump has not managed to revive the coal industry despite his relentless attempts to do so. And yesterday we learned the Trump administration's asking that our spending on clean energy research be cut by 72%. As usual, the State of the Union speech hadn't really changed any minds or anything. But the most important remark from Trump Tuesday night was made on his way out of the House chamber. As Trump shook hands along the way, South Carolina Republican Congressman Jeff Duncan asked Trump if Republicans should release that partisan memo on the FBI. 100%, said Trump, adding, oh yeah, don't worry. As this report was published, Trump had not yet seen the memo. In a nonpartisan historical sense, the opposition rebuttal speech that followed this year's State of the Union was a breath of fresh air. In the past, Republicans and Democrats, depending on the politics of a given president, stood alone at a podium, often uncomfortably, delivering an often pre-recorded speech that often failed to respond at all to what had just been said. Democrats and Republicans had fumbled before lifeless cameras delivering lifeless performances. Massachusetts Senator Joe Kennedy III was in a setting that was clean but far from sterile, a factory in Fall River, Mass. And for the first time, the speech was not only live, which is uncommon, but there was a live audience of townspeople and factory workers to hear it. Kennedy began by pointing out that this American town was built by immigrants. He later quoted a protest sign held by a child that read, Build a wall and my generation will tear it down. Kennedy cited the booming economy that booms more for the rich than for the rest. He noted that Russia is, quote, knee-deep in our democracy. He noted the bullets tearing through our classrooms, concerts, and congregations. Kennedy pointed to the partisanship and chaos in Washington. This, said Kennedy, is not who we are. He accused the Trump administration of making American life into a zero-sum game, one thing or the other, with nothing but wins and losses instead of compromise. Among the false choices, Kennedy said we have been given, quote, cut taxes for corporations today if we raise them for families tomorrow. We can take care of sick kids if we sacrifice dreamers, coal miners or single moms, rural communities or inner cities, Kennedy said, adding that Democrats choose both. In his swipes at Trump, the 37-year-old Kennedy said this administration measures dignity by net worth, celebrity, headlines, and crowd size. And he said bullies may land a punch, they may leave a mark, but they have never not once in the history of our United States managed to match the strength and spirit of a people united in defense of their future. The Fitness tracking we wear on our wrists could fall into the wrong hands. Those who would do America harm have a new and easy way to track the movements of American soldiers. The fitness tracking company Strava publishes what it calls a global heat map that shows the activity of its users worldwide over the past two years. These days, the highly populated areas on the map are just big, bright blobs. But in the mountains and deserts, 
and remote areas where U.S. soldiers fight, the dots are fewer and farther between and easier to see individually. They're easier to track. And some of those dots on that fitness map are American soldiers jogging and exercising. Those who would do them harm can see our troops' locations and figure out the locations of their bases using that map, which has a zoom feature to make the locating even more precise. The military, to encourage the fitness of its fighters, has encouraged the use of fitness trackers like Fitbits. The Pentagon even handed out 2,500 of them in its Battle of the Obesity Bulge. And that map is still online. This national security risk was discovered by a man studying international security in the Middle East when he found this global heat map. But it was the man's father who observed that it's a good way to keep track of the rich white people, which made the researcher wonder if it could track soldiers. It can. It does. All you have to do is find remote spots where people jog in small circles. A lot of the CIA personnel in Mogadishu, Somalia, like to jog, according to the map, and now the world knows that. Our soldiers protecting a dam in Syria also like to jog, we know from that map. A guy on Twitter says he used the map to locate a Patriot missile base. A writer at The New Yorker found where U.S. Special Ops hangs out in part of Africa. Often the joggers would name their routes things like Base Perimeter. Russian soldiers are also on that so-called heat map. Iranian soldiers don't show up. They either don't wear Fitbits or they're just more careful. Combined with other data, those who would do us harm can learn too much from that map. Soldiers fighting ISIS have now been banned from using those devices. Other national security personnel have been handed new restrictions as well. The makers of the devices say they're still refining their privacy settings. Trump's immigration agency can now track the movements of undocumented residents within our borders. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has just hired a company that already provides real-time tracking of license plates nationwide, a system used by other law enforcement agencies for tracking criminals. Across the country, cameras are photographing license plates. Computers identify the plate's owner and vehicle description and compare that plate from the first camera to its matches from other cameras and that shows the route. Immigration had tried to hire this company in 2014, but bowed then to privacy concerns before Trump was president. The top fundraiser for the Republican Party and one of the party's biggest contributors is out of the picture just ahead of the 2018 congressional elections. Las Vegas real estate mogul Steve Wynn has resigned as finance chair for the Republican National Committee after a Wall Street Journal report on a pattern of his alleged sexual misconduct and sexual assault on employees at Wynn Resorts. The RNC has accepted Wynn's resignation, and an increasing number of Republicans in Congress are returning the campaign donations they received from Steve Wynn. Some Republican lawmakers, but not all. Wynn is now under investigation by the Nevada Gaming Board. He says his ex-wife is behind the allegations. Wynn denies he's assaulted the manicurist who says he forced her into sex and by the masseuse who says he forced her to massage his genitals to orgasm. The Wall Street Journal says Wynn's hush money payment to the manicurist totaled $7.5 million. He reportedly directed his assistant to bring him the phone numbers of cocktail waitresses in his casinos. Others say he repeatedly exposed his genitals to them. 150 employees say they were targets of Wynn, who is 76 years old. Stock in Wynn's company immediately dropped 10% on this news, and the board announced a committee to investigate the allegations. Wynn may not last as his company's CEO, but right now the company has no one to succeed him. Meanwhile, the pressure is on the Republican Party to do as the Democrats did when top donor Harvey Weinstein was outed as an alleged sexual predator. A special prosecutor is now looking into why Michigan State University kept on Larry Nasser as its sports doctor even after repeated allegations of his 
sexual misconduct. Last week, Nasser got a virtual life sentence in prison for the molesting of more than 150 girls and women, many of whom are former U.S. Olympic gymnasts. We now know he molested more than 265 girls and women. And now the Michigan Attorney General has appointed a retired county prosecutor to be the special prosecutor who investigates the decisions and behavior of Nasser's employer, Michigan State. The state's special prosecutor will have the use of the Michigan State Police in conducting his probe. The state's assistant attorney general, Christina Grossi, will help the special prosecutor manage the investigation. The state of Texas is now also investigating since Nasser worked at a clinic there. Both the president and the athletic director at MSU have already retired and resigned, and more heads may roll in the wake of this new investigation. It's another reminder to school administrators across the country about the perils of seeing something but saying nothing. Another mass shooting has left at least four people dead an hour south of Pittsburgh. Jealousy reportedly fueled a domestic dispute that prompted 28-year-old Timothy Smith to show up at a car wash wearing a body armor vest without protective plates in it. He also carried a 9mm handgun and two rifles, one of which was a semi-automatic assault rifle and he fired about 30 shots at the car wash. He'd posted a meme on Facebook that read, After this week, I need to get taken, on a date, or by a sniper. Either one, he wrote, adding, I could do both. Smith himself took a bullet to the head and was not expected to survive. The wound may have been self-inflicted. Right in the middle of the flu epidemic, the head of the CDC is out after reports she held stock in tobacco, food, and drug companies last year, all industries under government scrutiny. After just six months, Dr. Brenda Fitzgerald is history. She reportedly bought the stocks about a month after she took the job as head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now she's leaving, her spokesman saying she could not divest from those stocks anytime soon. Quoting a former Bush administration official, you don't buy tobacco stocks when you're the head of the CDC, adding, it's ridiculous. We'll check in on your health, science, the arts, and, of course, stuff to make you smile in the third and final segment of next. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very important to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. If your Amazon dollars already go to another program, you can support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just below the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Three dramatically successful companies, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase, have joined forces to bring better, cheaper health care to their employees. Just how isn't clear, but if any companies can do this, these companies can. The expertise they don't already have, they say they will hire. Amazon's already been developing a prescription drug program. This could be the beginning of a trend that could spell the beginning of the end for health insurance companies in what could become a major shakeup of the healthcare industry. Stock in Express Scripts, Walgreens, and even the aggressively progressive drugstore chain CVS took a hit on this three-company announcement. The worst influenza outbreak in 15 years continues to plague the U.S. High numbers of the flu are being seen in all parts of the country, now having taken more than three dozen lives the number of cases rose by 12,000 last week for a total of 86,000. But since not everyone with the flu goes to a doctor, the numbers are likely much higher. A new study indicates that a bad case of the flu can substantially increase the risk for some people of heart attack for up to a year. The study says the risk could be six times greater in flu victims who already have heart concerns. The study recommends heart patients consider flu shots and hand washing as important as blood pressure and cholesterol meds. The flu virus is constantly evolving, and this year's vaccine, while helpful, has mostly missed its mark. Why can't they make a vaccine that works for all flus? Maybe they can. Experiments in mice have led researchers to a universal vaccine, one that would prevent the flu and without having to go back for another shot every year. 
But mice don't often reflect a vaccine's effect on humans, so the researchers say they will try it next on ferrets, which are a bit more like us than mice. Was animal testing used in the car you bought? Monkeys in the news. Volkswagen is also back in the news, apologizing for using monkeys to test diesel fumes. The New York Times revealed that VW hired a lab in Albuquerque to try to show that emissions from its newest model of the diesel Beetle are safer than the fumes of its predecessor. It involved putting 10 monkeys into an airtight compartment that was being fed fumes from that shiny new Beetle. The findings were never published, which would include the fate of the monkeys, so we can only guess. Oh, and one other thing. Even in that test, Volkswagen cheated again. After getting caught cheating on previous diesel emission tests, the company did so again this time, sending that lab another rigged engine. In the meantime, VW is also now apologizing for funding such a cruel experiment. A company statement says animal testing contradicts its own ethical standards. A VW engineer is already serving over three years in prison for his part in cheating on diesel emissions tests. Can humans be far behind? Scientists in Shanghai have cloned monkeys using the same method that gave us Dolly the sheep. Monkeys have been cloned before, but this was the first time to produce twin cloned monkeys. Cloning has also worked on frogs, mice, rabbits, pigs, cows, and dogs. But monkeys are in the primate family, like humans. And science is getting increasingly and uncomfortably close when it comes to primates. In a cave in Israel, scientists found a human jawbone that's between 177,000 and 194,000 years old. That means mankind migrated out of Africa perhaps 50,000 years earlier than we had known. It's called jackpotting, hacking an ATM so that it spits out money that isn't yours, sometimes as fast as 40 bills in 23 seconds. Hackers attacked standalone automatic tellers at least six times last week in the U.S., stealing over a million dollars. It's a form of theft that had already been seen in Europe, Asia, and Latin America. Now, for the first time, it's here. This week, the Secret Service warned banks to tighten security on those ATMs. Donald and Melania Trump had a favor to ask of the Guggenheim Museum of Art. They'd like to borrow for their private living quarters at the White House a painting by Vincent van Gogh, Landscape with Snow, was painted in 1888 and depicts a man in a black hat walking his dog along a path in France. No can do, replied the museum, somewhat respectfully. Less respectfully, the revered museum offered an alternative work of art called America. It's thought to be a satirical piece, poking fun at the excessive wealth of some Americans. The Guggenheim said the Trumps could have that piece long-term, that they could even have it installed if they wished. It is, you see, this art that the Trumps were offered, a toilet in gold. A gold toilet called America, not the Van Gogh the Trumps had requested. Neither the museum nor the White House would care to comment any further. Passages. Justin Timberlake turned 37 this week. I'll just let that soak in. And passings, we lost another classic newspaper cartoonist this past week. Mort Walker, a native of El Dorado, Kansas, has died at 94 at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. At 18, Walker moved to the city, Kansas City, where he became the top designer at Hallmark Cards. But through his career, he drew two popular strips, High and Lois and Beetle Bailey, about a lazy U.S. Army soldier. Walker died in his home studio, surrounded by his drawings and toys featuring his favorite characters, mostly the soldiers at Camp Swampy. The Beetle Bailey strip reflected his time in the Army during World War II. Walker's latest work will continue to run for a month, leading up to a farewell strip that also features favorites from Camp Swampy. 
The new Maze Runner movie was tops at the box office this week with a $24 million take. Jumanji fell to second. The Post hung in at number five. The movie most likely to sweep the Oscars, The Shape of Water, is North America's eighth most popular movie with just a $6 million take. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The last blockbuster video store in Texas is finally closing. The liquidation sale has already begun at that store in Edinburgh, Texas. Everything must go. Just like nearly all of the other blockbuster video stores that used to draw people in cities across America on a Friday or Saturday night. Only seven other stores still remain, including one in Bend, Oregon, and six in Alaska, where cable and Internet can be scarce. The ratings tanked for this year's Grammy Awards presentation on CBS. Nearly 10 million fewer people watched as Bruno Mars swept with Best Song, Best Record, and Best Album. Viewership was down 21% from last year, which was lower than the year before. Still, over 17 million did watch. It'll be interesting to see the numbers for the upcoming Oscar telecast, which, like its predecessors this award season, will likely spotlight the Me Too movement and target the current president. No wonder New Orleans floods, he said, half kidding. The storm drains were clogged. Over the past few months, they've been clearing out the storm drains in New Orleans to remove the trash and debris. There's quite a bit of that between the tourists and the litter bugs and Mardi Gras, which brings us to the beads. The city of New Orleans says it removed over these past few months over 93,000 pounds of Mardi Gras beads from those storm sewers. Quoting the public works director, once you hear a number like that, you never go back, so we have to do better. Hey, la ba. Oranges tumbled out of two cars and a van that were stopped just outside of the city of Seville, Spain, Tumbling out onto the roadway were the 8,000 pounds of stolen oranges the vehicles were carrying. The two cars were so full of oranges, they filled the car floorboard to ceiling, pressed up against the windows. Those vehicles will smell nice for months. The five people in those three vehicles no doubt smelled orangey fresh when they went to jail. Police will find out all they need to know from the suspects by putting the squeeze on them, of course. A pet tortoise escaped from its backyard enclosure using a hole that had been dug in advance by a fox. Tallulah the tortoise was gone, and the owner spent the next few weeks scouring the neighborhood and putting up flyers. After a month or so, I thought, okay, I need to put her things away, says Leanna Morris of Oxford, England. I took down her light, I put her food back, and Leanna's life, it felt empty, she says. But Tallulah is back now, after being found six months later, all the way across the street. It's a tortoise. That bird won't fly. That's the firm decision of United Airlines after a woman tried to board one of its planes with a peacock. The woman had purchased a full-price ticket for the plumed poultry, but United gave the bird and the lady the boot, saying it was too big and heavy and not within the airline's guidelines. United says it tried to explain this to the woman on three separate occasions before she'd ever arrived at the airport, but she showed up anyway with the peacock. No way was it proud. A Norwegian Airlines flight to Germany had climbed to 33,000 feet before the captain turned it around. The toilet was broken. So the plane had to return to its departure point, even though the plane was carrying 85 plumbers. Quoting one, There was a good atmosphere on the plane, what with the irony about the broken toilets. At a wedding in New Jersey, the groom's mother was breathless, literally. As the couple prepared for their courthouse wedding, they made sure both mothers were there. But the groom's mom suffered an asthma attack right there in the courthouse. She collapsed in the women's restroom where courthouse deputies gave her oxygen while they waited for the EMTs. The couple had to make a decision either get married on schedule or wait at least another 45 days for their license to be processed all over again. So one of the deputies suggested they move the ceremony from the clerk's office to the restroom where mom was. 
And that is how Brian and Maria Schultz will always remember their wedding, exchanging vows next to the paper towel dispenser. Of course, they'll always have the video, which was also recorded by deputies. And finally, you are not allowed to escape from prison, even if you plan to come back soon. They have rearrested an inmate from the federal pen in Beaumont, Texas, after that prisoner escaped, went to a local ranch, stole some home-cooked food, and took it back to the prison in a big duffel bag, where he is now doing extra time for the escape and for possession of marijuana. A 25-year-old named Josh Hansen is now back to serving his time on a narcotics charge, which may be why he also brought back some tobacco, some weed, a bottle of whiskey, and three bottles of brandy. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.